So I'm going to talk to you today about uh, Palm Sunday. So <clears throat> this is all about, probably, if you look at Scripture, this is probably one of Jesus's, the greatest, um, most triumphant, most, um, probably the largest crowd or gathering was this day uh, about Jesus. On Palm Sunday, it was really in, in the minds of the people, this was the most important day based upon what all Jesus was doing. Like the resurrection, really, if you look at the things that are in the Bible and look at the, 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 what was going on, the confusion after the resurrection, people were running like crazy. They were scared. Disciples was hiding. I mean, nobody believed Mary. I mean, she's telling them, all, Jesus alive, Jesus alive. Nobody believed her. They had to go check for themselves. And even then, they were hiding out in the upper room, hiding out over here. They were hiding everywhere under the roofs. I mean, you know, they're just scared out of their minds. But on Palm Sunday, this would have been the greatest in the eyes of man. Not in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of the plan of God, but in the eyes of man. Think about what they're seeing. This is who they believe to be the Messiah, and he's going to bring them freedom. They're in, surrounded by the Roman occupation, so their thought is, Jesus is going to deliver us and set us free. And this is the Messiah who God foretold in prophecy. Though they understood prophecy, they didn't realize the reason for the prophecy. They didn't understand it was a spiritual deliverance more than a physical deliverance. So they were banking on, well, man, he's going to kick the Romans out of here. We're getting our stuff back. No more Romans. I mean, you know, they're, they're really happy about this. And they are throwing a party. And so I want you to hear this. This is in John 12. I want you to just read a couple of sentences, and I'll kind of break this down a little bit. But John 12, 12, this is about Palm Sunday. This is John's writing, okay, of what happened, okay? And so... On the next day, the Bible says, John 12, 12, it says, on the next day, the large crowd, everybody say large. In Israel, that means it's a big one. In Georgia, we say it's a big one, all right? I mean, you have to understand, the majority of the Jews did not live in Israel at the time. Most of, scholars will tell you this, most of them were scattered all throughout the regions. Israel probably didn't have the largest occupation of Jews at the time, but the ones who were there... Man, they, they were so proud, so excited, because here's their Messiah. And so Jesus comes in. He's got a large crowd now that's gathered there for the feast. What feast is the feast of Passover? So we, we talk about Easter, the resurrection. In the Old Covenant, it was Passover. Passover, now we talk about the resurrection. In the Old Testament, it was Passover. So they're there for that. It says, watch this now. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him. And believe it or not, whatever you think about Israel... Israel is not a, like, deserted, ungodly, humid, hot desert, and that's all that's there. There's lush areas in Israel, beautiful palm trees and green areas. And so they broke these palm branches off. They're everywhere. You know, I mean, these palm trees are everywhere. And so they're breaking these off, and they're laying them down, and they're going out and shouting in Jerusalem, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this is a fulfillment, by the way, of prophecy of Psalm 118. If you go back and read that, you can see that as well. But Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. This is in Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seating on a donkey's colt. They knew these prophetic words, and so therefore they are like, you've got to understand. This would be like if you work for a jerk boss, which none of our guys here do. But if you do work for one, I feel for you. But if you do, this would be like somebody coming in from corporate, and your boss is the biggest jerk in town. Everybody knows it. And corporate comes in and says, bing, you're out. That's what they look. They're like, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to go, bing, 
to the Romans. They're, they are so, they read these prophecies. Our king is coming on a colt. Here he is, throwing on palm branches. This is the man. They are so, it is fever pitch. I mean, it is wild right now. And then it says this, verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they didn't understand what's happening at the moment either. But verse 17. So then now the people who were with him, two different groups of people. There's one large group, now there's another group. The people that were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify about him. So now you've got another large group of people that are with him. They're giving the testimony, this is the guy we've been, you know, We've been texting you about him. It was on Instagram. He raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the man. They're all throughout Jerusalem. You have to understand, everybody gathered together at Passover. This was a big, big deal. This would be like Easter Sunday for us. The, the place is full. Everybody goes to church on Easter. Whether you want to or you don't want to, you're going anyway, right? It's just part of what people do. There, it, there was no place to just gather that you had to it was crowded and all these people are testifying about jesus raising lazarus from the dead and so other people are hearing this is really the messiah it's getting bigger he's had one crowd that was already there now they're hearing about it's getting more and more tension the excitement is building right and so they're there they're testifying about this in verse 18 for this reason also the people went and met him what people is that the other large group that was already gathered there so there's people coming and listening, going like, what, wait, wait, what? They weren't with him. They were already there in Jerusalem. Now they're going like, what's happening? So now he's drawing this crowd. He's got the crowd from Passover. He's got this crowd coming and the crowd giving testimony. I mean, everybody's kind of hanging out around Jesus. You kind of get the picture, right? And it goes on to say this, that the, they, were, they were there in, in uh, verse 17. So the people were with him, he called out. Um, let me back up to seven. Verse 17, so the people who were with him when he called out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify about him. And for this reason also the people went out and met him because they had heard that he performed this sign. So they're there because of what happened. Now watch this verse 19. Another group of people, the Pharisees. This is no small group either, by the way. The, the Sanhedrin along, a couple hundred people. Uh, by the time you add the scribes, all the other people in there, I mean, this was a big staff of people, Okay. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good, talking to the other leaders there. Look, watch this. The world has gone after him. In the Pharisees' mind, their whole plot was they were plotting to kill Lazarus just as much as they were Jesus. You're reading your Bible, but this is interesting. They hated the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They're going to kill him. I mean, the miracle so affected their ministry their attendance dropped so much because this guy got raised from the dead, right? It, it bothered them so much. They're going to kill Lazarus, the miracle, just to kind of give their ego a better you know, day, I guess. I don't know. So it's not just Jesus they're planning to kill. They're planning to kill Lazarus too. And they have actually said, the plot's done. It's not working. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So in Israel, to understand the logic behind this word, the world, it would have represented basically everyone in town has shown up for Jesus. In their minds, the world meant that large of a crowd. Jesus had the full attention. What's Passover going to be like now? Nobody's going to come and bring their little lambs or anything else. No one's going to watch anything. No one's going to be a part of it. No one's coming to our church. You know, that's kind of how they feel. Like, Man, you know, they're not coming to hang out with us. We hang out with Jesus. He's raising people from the dead. All we do is do sacrifices. That's kind of the way they felt. They're jealous. They're insecure upset, frustrated. Verse 20, 
Watch this. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Then the Greeks started coming around. Another group of people. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew, because I guess he didn't have the authority to make that call. I don't know what happened there, but I guess Philip felt like, I don't know if I can let you do that. Andrew, hey, what do we do about this? Greeks want to talk to Jesus. Um, Can we do that or not do that? What do you think? Apparently, Andrew didn't know either. So they decided to all go together and said, Hey, Jesus, um, there's some Greeks here. They want to catch some time, have a little coffee with you. What's up? Can you do that? Jesus totally dismissed the crowd. Everyone in this room, if you had the crowd that he had, it would have done something to you. I hate to tell you that. I know you'd like to think, oh, I could handle it. No, you can't. We have proof of that. Like, look at our humanity and the history of humanity with crowds, and you'll see. Listen, man, anybody can draw a crowd. People go watch some weird stuff. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think about the stuff you see. I mean, like, I've been to some of this stuff. Monster trucks. Seems kind of like, does that really draw a crowd? It does. A lot of people go watch bigger trucks smash smaller trucks. The masters. There's people everywhere down in Augusta. The only thing down there is the masters. There's people everywhere down there to watch a bunch of guys with some metal sticks hit some balls and get paid a whole lot of money, and they paid a lot of money to get in there to watch it. Right now, I'm going to watch it later. People watch stuff all the time. You know, moms, they don't even say anything. They're just there going like, People that stand there on the sidewalk and watch. He's good. <laughs> Anybody can draw a crowd for something. I mean, look at the dude perfect guys. Man, they, these guys, they throw basketballs off the top of buildings 5,000 times, and they record it until they get the one that goes in and goes, that goes on YouTube, baby. Look at this. Woo! People watch anything. If you don't believe that, YouTube has videos where People have recorded cats doing stupid stuff, and people just watch it. <laughs> look at the cats. <laughs> look at the cats. Oh, look at the cats. Cats are so stupid. I mean, they're just, and they're people just watching them all day. Millions of hits watching the cats all day long. Cute cats, funny cats, cats with clothes, cats with sunglasses. Because crowds will come to anything. And Jesus knew this. And so his disciples wouldn't be bought by the crowd. He shifts gears. Now watch what Jesus says. Everybody's there, Jesus. And now the Greeks want to meet you too. Jesus says, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Can you imagine the disciples' faces like, I mean, like, I mean, he's always giving lessons, but like, hold on. Like, I just asked him to have coffee with the Greeks. Like, he's going on the, what's he talking about? Andrew's probably like, dude, I don't know. Like, you know, you brought me into this mess. Thanks a lot, Philip. <laughs> he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Man, I love that. I wanted to camp out here, but it's not really what God really gave me today. But just for a second, isn't it funny that he says, if anybody serves me, he must follow me. Two different things right there all together. 
Man, you can serve Jesus all day long and not follow him. Anybody can serve. Anybody can serve. And I thank God for everybody that does serve. Thank you all for what you do. But listen, be careful that in your serving, you forget about your following. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Anybody can serve. I've watched so many times people, I want to serve. And I love that. We all do. We all. But be careful that your service doesn't exceed your followership. Because you said, if you're going to serve me, man, you've got to follow me too. Because sometimes following him is a little bit harder than serving. I don't know about you, but it's a little easier to serve Jesus than it is to follow him. Serving Jesus is kind of like, hey, I'll open a door. I'll teach a kid's class. I'll preach a message. That's not so difficult. Following is when he says, hey, let me check you on your behavior here. Oh, man, can I just like hand out communion crackers and whatnot? I mean, it's a lot easier, Jesus, because serving isn't following, but they go hand in hand. Anyway, that's a different message, but he said he must follow me, and where I am there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Isn't it funny? I was just reading this and thinking, isn't it funny how in your greatest moments of processions and crowds and accolades and everything that people give you hand claps for, isn't it funny like the greatest moments you have are typically followed by valleys? Have you ever noticed this? Like, I just was reading, thinking through my own life, and I thought, man, you know, it was great. Last year was great. Man, we, man, it was just a great season last year. Everything was going great. We were excited. Haley and I were like, we're pumped up about this new year. Everything's great, man. We, we bought a vacation. We're like, you're looking forward to the summer. Now we're really looking forward to it. But then in January, you know, Christmas is over. We're happy. Everything's great. And then boom, you know, with our house situation. I was thinking, like, what What gives? Isn't it possible that sometimes we can get wrapped up in everything around us? The things that go on that everybody in the world looks at and says, these are great. But what really matters most sometimes is what is not seen. Most of the time I find this to be true. There's three times more discussion about the accolades that was going on about Jesus. And Jesus brings back to a couple of sentences about what's really important. You've got to die to certain things. Nobody likes to talk about the dying, do they? Nobody. I mean, there's no one lining up. Like, people line up for Starbucks, they line up for coffee, line up for burgers, whatever. There's not a stop and shop anywhere you see that says, hey, let's all talk about dying and figure that whole thing out. Come in here and hang out with us. No one does that. No one wants to talk about dying, but it's a reality. Very real. Matter of fact, history pretty much is 100% accurate on it. It happens to everybody. It just does. So what do you do with that? I think because we don't like that conversation, we don't like talking about what Jesus says here, which is dying to self. But three times more conversation they made about the crowd, Jesus gives a small couple of sentences about the dying. But which one's more important? It must be the dying because he wouldn't meet with these people about the crowds. Here's the funny thing about the crowds, about Jesus. I think his focus was not on the success of the crowd, his focus was always on the surrender of the cross. See, we, look, you may not know this, but we do measure numbers here. We do. We measure crowds, if you will. We have to. Not because crowds make us look good. We don't measure crowds because we say, oh, look, we had this many in church today. That's not why we do that. We do that because we know how many parking spaces we have. We know how many seats we have. We know how many kids' classrooms we're limited to. That determines how many people we can do in different places and place kids and whatever else. We, might, we watch that for that reason. It does make some of an impact, if you will, on one hand, because you're saying if you don't have anyone attending, then there's a problem, right? That would be a, an issue, you know? If every week we just said, well, one was there, and it was you preaching. That's a problem. 
don't really need a whole lot of room for that. You know, you can do that in your car. But we count not, but, but what's the more important thing? Is it the mass numbers, or watch this, or is it those that transition from the crowd to becoming a follower of Jesus? Which one do you think Jesus measures more? It's probably the disciple. It's not the crowd. Because anybody can draw a crowd. Evil can evil showed us that. Some of y'all are young. I know who that is. Google that. All right. Interesting. That was long before the Red Bull guys. But his, crowd, his focus wasn't on the crowd. It was on the surrender of the cross. And Jesus knows too well what success brings. And tell me this isn't true. The more success you have, watch this, the more appetite you have for more success. If not careful, especially here in our culture, success is taught to you about called the American dream, right? You've probably heard that all of your life. It's the American dream. You can do anything you want to do, be anything you want to be. You can have it all. It's America, baby. Come on. Right? I mean, that's, that's basically the gist of it. Am I, am I right or wrong? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Come on, raise your hand like you know, like you know the answer. It's okay. Because you know? you've heard that. I know you have. Nothing wrong with that at all. The only problem is, at what point do we say enough's enough? How many awards do I need before I say, okay, I'm good? Or not so much, it's anything wrong with having another award, but maybe why am I going after that? You see what I'm saying? Because the more success you have, the more it drives you to have more success. And I'm not putting down success. There's nothing wrong with it. God wants you to be successful. He wants you to to be blessed. Listen, let me just give you a a verse to prove that. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. God doesn't doesn't mind you being blessed and having success. He actually wants you to be that. He really does, because it confirms his covenant, because there should be a blessing on our lives. We are the people of God. People should look at us and go, there's something different about you. Totally something different about you. And it's not because you walk better, talk better, or you have a better attitude. There should be more tangible evidence that we are different. In Israel, they are different for a number of reasons, but they are different and they stand out. I mean, how, it's interesting. How many businesses in town are closed on Sunday? Three off the top of my head, I was thought, I laughed about it because somebody told me this, and they don't, they don't go to church or anything. They were talking about this the other day, and they said, well, you know, that the, the Chick-fil-A, they're talking about the Chick-fil-A. You know, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And I was like, I thought everybody knew that. Because I hate, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but sometimes on Sunday I get a little frustrated because I'm like, man, they're, not, they're closed, you know. But then I think, oh, well, you know, it's good, it's good. But I didn't know this, uh, you know, Hobby Lobby's closed too. And this new thing, the Lumina, the shop's closed on Sunday. I'll just shut the whole thing down. What do you think that says to people? They just don't want to work on that day. They're lazy. They can make a lot more money if they just was open. Especially Chick-fil-A. What does it tell people? What do people say, though? This person said, well, they're a Christian restaurant, I think. It just stands out. There are certain things about us that should stand out. Nothing wrong with success. Chick-fil-A is a great success. God wants you to be blessed. But what drives us once we reach success? Do we know why we're still pushing forward? The thing I know about success is it has a way of distracting us from dying. I'm not talking about physical death. I'm not dying to stuff. You know, like, you know, like we, we die to stuff all the time, man. We've died to cars. We've died to homes. We've died to gadgets and gizmos. You don't know what I'm talking about? Let me just give you an example. When you want a new car, what do you typically do? Well, we, we can not eat out anymore. We can cut off this, you know. The kids can just, you know, wear the underwear inside out or something like that. Whatever. You, you figure it out, don't you? 
You die to a lot of stuff. I'm just kidding about the underwear thing. But just to make sure, because somebody, somebody's lobbly, like, he really makes his kids do that. No, I've thought about it. I've thought about it. But no, we ain't doing all that. The reality is you die to gain what you want. Isn't it true? You'll go out, you'll eat ham sandwiches for a year, baby. Pack your lunch, crackers and a ham sandwich, just to gain something else you want. You'll die for that to gain something else. We know what dying means, but success has a way of distracting us from dying. If you don't believe that, think about Joseph. A couple of guys in the Bible, just real quick. But Joseph had a lot of dreams, real famous for that, right? His, His dreams were given to him by God. He was interpreting dreams, and he starts bragging about them. He starts getting so kind of accustomed to the dreams he keeps having and not realizing that his family hates his guts. He's been distracted by his success. There's other guys about Saul, first king in Israel. Think about what happened to him. He was distracted because he was anointed to be king. Boy, you gotta, y'all, y'all with me right now, right? So Saul was anointed to be king. He was gifted for one thing, but because in his gifting he found success, he now thought he could just step over here into something else. He had no anointing or no gifting for because he had success over here. It must work over here, and he tried to move from kingship to prophetic, and it failed miserably. You remember this, right? Samuel showed up and said, what have you done? Like, bro, that's my job description. You're you're in the wrong lane. Messed up his whole kingship. And forever Saul was miserably trying to readjust. He's talking about David. This is a guy that the Bible says is after God's own heart. We all heard about David. He plays harp. Dances out there with the sheep. Kills giants, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. He's a, an amazing guy. But King David, in his success, began to forget about his role. The Bible says in the time which kings could go out to war, David found himself in the palace. Sipping on some latte. I don't know. Looking out the window. You know, who's that? What's her name? That's Bathsheba. Yo, B. <laughs> hey, go ask her. Hey, go ask her if, uh, like, you know, how's she doing and all that kind of stuff. And does she need anything? Her husband's in the war. And long story short, David winds up throwing off a lot of things because of success distracted him from dying to self. There is nothing wrong. If you leave her today and you say, that pastor believes that we shouldn't be, that is not true. I don't understand pastors who tell their church, and I'm not picking, I'm just saying, I, I would never say this, period. Even, like, I think I would have to question myself why my motives would be there. Why would I tell my church congregation to be poor? That's a foolish thing to say. If I tell you to be poor, then what are we going to do? I mean, what are we going to do? Really, what are we going to do? Well, y'all, we, God wants you to be poor. That's his plan for you, to be poor. My mercy, I'm, I'm killing myself, my gosh. I mean, I ain't going to eat, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that makes no sense. I also don't believe in being so extreme that everybody, God says everybody should be millionaires either. But I do believe God wants you to be successful. He wants you to be blessed, provide for your kids, family, whatever it is in your heart, he wants to bless you outside of anything you can ever think or imagine. Absolutely, I believe that. But I know what success has. It has a way of distracting us from dying. Because success makes you think that, I got this. And Jesus wouldn't allow the crowd to make him believe, I got this. He turned it back and said, no, 
you got to die. And they looked at him and said, what? Why is he talking about seeds and dying? He's got the biggest crowd of his life. You understand this was bigger than anything in Capernaum. This was bigger than anything ever before he had had. This was the largest crowd. This is like a Billy Graham crusade times 10, okay? He has got the biggest crowd, and he turns from that and says it's not the most important thing. Luke 19.11 says this. Watch this. Luke 19.11, another crowd, says the crowd was listening to everything that Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, watch this, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Because in their mind, it was happening right now, right now, right now. So that's what Jesus had to correct. And so it says this, he said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver saying, watch this, invest this for me while I'm gone. A couple other verses, I'll put them on the screen for you, okay? This is different, just a couple, about three different translations, okay? We'll put it up there, guys. You got the image there for different translations. Just pop it up there for them so they can see it. This is the New King James Version. It says, occupy until I come. The word invest, occupy until I come. In the New American Standard, it says, do business with this until I come back. The message says, operate with this until I return. And regardless of what translation that you want to look at, it's clear, isn't it, that we are to advance his kingdom. Jesus gave this illustration, occupy until I come, do business until I come, invest this until I come back. Do, do what you're supposed to do, right? That's what Jesus said. So there is not this idea of sitting back and just being static. We are supposed to move forward. Jesus actually, I was thinking about this, and I thought, the way he describes this, I'm not telling you how to do your thing, but the way he describes this, and thinking about the other parable he told about the parable of the talents, and he was disappointed with the guy who hid what he had, it sounds like Jesus isn't as concerned, and there's nothing wrong with saving. Don't, please don't leave here and say that I said you shouldn't save. That's not what I'm saying. But he seems like he's more focused on what are we doing with what we have and investing versus just saving. Saving is easy. That's not a hard thing to do. Investing is a whole different ballgame. Because saving is safe. I know this may be a little different this morning, and I'm going to talk about a couple of things here that may be like, what? what Just hang in. I'll, I'll circle back around and land a plane, okay? But saving is easy. You ever thought about that? I know you might think, it's no, it's not easy. It is easy. If I take some money and I go, you know what? I'm going to take, I'm going to take $20. I'm not going to spend this. I'm going to put it into a savings account, all right? It's going in my savings account right there. I got a guarantee. That's just twenty dollars. That's nothing. I got a guarantee from the bank. I think it's bumped to two fifty now, two hundred fifty k. That no matter what happens, if I just keep it in a savings account, it's what safe. It's not going anywhere. They're gonna make any money. Like it's probably <laughs> with inflation, it's probably going down the longer it sits in there. I don't know, but nonetheless, my twenty dollars is safe, right? Watch this. Let me take another twenty out. I'm going to invest this. I'm going to go invest this in something, a business. Is this safe now? Heck no. It's a risk that's now attached with something that matters to me because my kids need this for food or clothing or shelter or whatever. Now I'm talking risk is different. This is safe. 
That's why Jesus said to the guy who hid his stuff, he's like, hey, man, you could at least put it in a, like a money market account or something to get me some kind of interest. You just stuck it in the ground. It's safe. This has risk. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that everything that Jesus requires of us is somewhat risky? I don't know about you, but there is nothing safe about standing up and saying, I'm a Christian today. Now, back in the 1980s, 1960s, going back in American history, that's kind of maybe the cool thing to be. Sunday morning, everybody went to church. Most businesses were shut down. If you say today and proclaim that you're a Christian, there's risk involved. People are going to blast you on Facebook about something. They're going to, you know, line you up with another group that maybe you're not affiliated with. It's just not as popular today. There's risk involved when Jesus says, hey, man, I want you to uh, step out and talk to that person right there about me. The risk is, man, they could reject you. They could punch you. (laughs) It's happened before. There was a guy in Tulsa who was doing prayers for people one time, man, and he, he was praying for the guy. And I always thought about this. You know, I've never forgotten this. It's so funny now. But he was praying for people. He just, people come down front. So he's just praying for people. Different people just went. This guy was standing there. And the guy was praying for him. All of a sudden, this guy just, pow, I mean, uppercut to the jaw to the preacher. David was like, like Mike Tyson punch out. It was this. And I was like, why, why did he do that? It's a risk. There's a risk in anything you do for Christ. It's not supposed to be safe all the time. Jesus says, if you take a seed and you hold it, put it in a bag or whatever, it remains as it is, alone. But once you take that seed, watch the risk. As long as you keep it out of the dirt, you still own it. It's there. It's, you have it. It's safe. It's in your little savings thing. It's safe. But the moment you take the seed out, and you put it in the ground, there's a risk. The risk is it may not come up. The risk is the harvest may come and you may not get anything. What if there's a frost? What if there's a freeze? What if there's, you know, animals, locusts, whatever? There's a risk. But he says, that's the only way you're going to see return. I was thinking about this and I thought, I was watching um, some of the masters, the replay and stuff like that. And I was watching this thing, whether you like, you know, different, different guys or not, doesn't matter, but <clears throat> I was watching Tiger Woods, and they were going afterwards, these questions. And I always love reporters that give these questions. You know, they're always fun to me to watch because some of them are just senseless, you know. Like, I don't know what they're thinking that day. Like, you should prep this before you ask the man a question, you know. I mean, he's only like a, one of the most, you know, famous golfers, probably one of the best golfers ever. And you ask him stuff like, hey, so how did it feel when he was walking up 18? Did you feel better now? I mean, you can look at his eyes. He don't want to say it. He's smiling because he's doing good. He's like, well, it felt pretty good. Yeah, it felt pretty good. You know, somebody's asking him a, a better question. I would ask him stuff like, hey, man, when this whole thing's over, could I get five minutes and you show me how you do what you do? I don't really care how you felt walking up the green. It ain't me. So, like, you know, I'm glad for you and all, but if I could do what you do, that might be kind of cool. But somebody asked me a question, though. Great question. I said, hey, Tiger. What's your day look like tomorrow, seeing that this, the event's going to start earlier? What time will you be getting up? Shifted whole perspective. He said, well, I'll probably get up at about 3.30 in the morning. Why are you getting up at 3.30 in the morning? Because I got to get this body. Watch this. This is a golfer. I got to get this body ready for what I'm going to do at like 8 o'clock. Man, I listened to that and I thought, a professional golfer 
gets up at 3.30 in the morning to prepare for a golf game. And it hit me, I thought, man, do I do that? I don't get up at 3.30 to prepare for like a Sunday. I don't get up at 3.30 to prepare for a Bible study or anything else like that. He does it for golf. What is that called? Watch this. Everybody wants the... That's a golf clap. That's how they do it. That's how it's done. You know, because right, the masters, it ain't like, you know, public courses where you're like, what's that? They ain't going to do all this. Everybody wants that, don't they? Everybody wants to be the champion. Everybody wants to win the game. Everybody wants to have the A's. Everyone wants to go to that school. Everyone wants to have a successful business. So here's the question. Watch this. Are we willing to pay the price for what it takes to get the... Man, that hit me hard because I thought about it. No one's been with him. I read stories about Mike, Michael Jordan. I'm just giving you some guys that you've probably heard of. People talk about him, how great of a basketball player he was, but no one saw him when he was like 13 years old, sitting outside on the grass, shooting free throws for hours while other kids were doing other things. He didn't ride bicycles. He didn't go to the store. He sat outside and just shot free throws. And people are like, oh, he's so awesome. He's awesome, yeah. But it's because he worked for it. He was willing to pay, watch this, the price. And Jesus said, watch this, if you will die to self, you can receive a harvest off of that death. So Jesus, he clears this air, and he says to everyone, I'm not doing this for the crowd. I'm keeping my focus on God. He said, my goals are still the same. John 4, 34, he said this to the people. They were talking about bread and food. Hey, man, let's get something to eat, Jesus. We got to go to the store, get some Chick-fil-A or whatever. And Jesus said, I've already eaten. I got food you don't know about. And they actually said, did he go to, did he go get some chicken while we weren't, what happened? when did he go to the, somebody bring him a bar, what happened, man? He gets some, like, falafel, what happened? Like, what's, what's going on? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. He was talking about something totally different. And so today I want to challenge all of us right now with this thought. Am I dying to my will or to his will? If we're honest, I think I need to examine my motives from time to time. You need to examine your motives from time to time. What am I dying to? Isn't it funny how you'll eat ham sandwiches, peanut butter, jelly for a year to get a car? But if Jesus says, would you give me five more minutes? Isn't it funny how many things we I, I'll just pick on me. I'm going to pick on you. I'll just pick on me, okay? I'm a pastor. Let me pick on pastor. You don't, I don't know if pastor's supposed to tell you this, but I'll pick on me, Okay. He asked me for five more minutes. You know what I say? Man, I, you know, and you know what I got to do, right? I got this dude and that dude. I'm doing stuff for you. But what's more important, serving Jesus or following Jesus? Have you found out which one is the greater price that you pay? And so in everything that I do in my advancing, success, whatever else God gives me to do, here's a question I wrote down. How much am I willing to die for me? And how much am I willing to die for him? I heard this message years and years ago, and I didn't understand it at first, but I understand it more and more now as I get older. But in every ministry, in every life, every business, every relationship, there are seasons and cycles of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. So I want you to leave you with this thought. We close up. You worship guys, you can come on up for a second. 
We all experience death and resurrection. I'm not talking about physical death right now. I'm talking about things that you have to give up to resurrect something that you want to see blessed. Jesus died to see a family come back to God. God's greatest intent was Adam and Eve in the garden. That was his plan for everyone. The whole intent was that. God told him, be fruitful, multiply. But then he said, watch this, listen, it was a three-point deal. Be fruitful and multiply, but watch this, subdue. That means take authority. Don't let people, don't let something creep in here and push you around. You take authority over that which is evil. So God said, they didn't do that. So Jesus came. The only way to return us back to him was to die. So Jesus, watch this, he died, he was resurrected, and restoration happened. But I've found this to be true in my life, and I bet it's true in yours as well. If you want your marriage to get better, it's not going to happen by asking your spouse to die to something. Typically, what have you found that if you want your marriage to get better, what do you you usually have to do? If you really want it to get better, you're not going to slip a book to them and say, hey, I think you ought to read this. That's not going to (laughs) help. You're not going to make it by just giving them a quote. Oh, I read this by, you know, a marriage expert. Here, read that. Hoping it works. What what do you do? You die to, come on, let's say it like you mean it. Come on, you die to, that's what you do. Isn't it true that if you own a business, you die to self? Business owners will tell you that. If you look around and you're not a business owner, if you think business owners are just making bukus of money, and they make money, they should make money. They're giving up a lot. I know business owners who have mortgaged their homes twice so they could make the business make a go of it, and all the employees are getting paid. They had no idea, but they sacrifice, and then you see the success, and everybody goes, oh, wow, look at that. They're awesome. Go back and read what Chick-fil-A and how it started. Read about Trick Kathy and see what he gave up to get what he had you'll find that every season of life has death and resurrection. Jesus said if you take a seed, which is your life, and if you just keep it to yourself, it's going to be good. You'll have a good life. But if you really want the best of it, take your life, surrender it in the areas that he's asking for. I'm not talking about Christianity right now. Talking about as a Christian, he always asks you to surrender more. If you've never had to surrender, like in five, it was in a five-year span that's gone by, and you've not had to surrender anything else for Jesus. I hate to tell you, knock, 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 knocking on heaven's door. Like you know, today's the day. You're probably going to have to surrender something. Holy Spirit's probably tugging at your heart, saying, "Yeah, that's for you," because I don't see how you can go five years and never have to surrender anything. I can't even seem like I can get out the door before he's talking to me about you know. You probably shouldn't have said it that way. Can I just get one day, Lord? I wanted to say it that way. Come on. Am I the only one, right? He he asks for you to surrender. There is death. But then watch this. There's resurrection. Man, if you want the resurrection, you got to drop the seed in the ground. The risk is you don't know what's going to happen. But the reward far exceeds what you have to give up. So today I want to pray for you about this, this area of dying to self. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. And, Lord, I thank you for the time that we have together here with you and talking about the idea of death and and resurrection. God, there cannot be a resurrection if something doesn't die. So today I pray, Lord, if there's maybe marriages in the room right now that some spouses need to die to some selfish things. 
They want their spouse to change. They want them to be different. They want it, but they're not examining their own heart. I pray in Jesus' name today, some things die today. Lord, we let go of some pain. We let go of some hurt. We let go of some feelings. Lord, I pray against those areas where maybe there's some people in here, maybe they're offended. They got some people they work with, they're offended at. They're carrying it around with them. And it's hurting them and affecting them in a negative way. I'm praying in the name of Jesus today, Lord, they would die to that. And even if the person was wrong, and even if they are right, I'm asking you that you would help them today to release that offense so that they let that die and a resurrection can take place in their own life. God, I pray for businesses. I pray for families. I pray for kids and whatever area there is in here right now, some things that need to just die. Surrender today. In Jesus' name, give people the courage to do that. And Father, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray right now they'd yield their lives to you. Greatest surrender you could do is give your heart to Jesus. And we're going to pray this prayer together as a church family. Everybody in here is going to pray it. You won't be by yourself. But if you need to say yes to Jesus, repeat this prayer after me with this whole church congregation right now. Say, dear Jesus, I come before you. I give you my heart. I give you my life. And I surrender everything to you. Jesus, forgive me of sin. I accept you as my Savior. I make you my Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Man, if you prayed that prayer, we're so proud of you.